In the words of the fabled food critic and sometimes singer Barbara Streisand, the best fried chicken I know comes with a TV dinner. And always know that love's never wrong, no matter... Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about quality, taste, and magic. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. I'd like you to meet my friend, Margot. I'm working on something to help people dramatically improve the results the words create online. When we write, which we're doing all the time, we're writing in our emails, we're writing in our newsfeed, we're writing in text to our friends, we are trying to make change happen. We are trying to reach the people who want the things that we have. The trouble is most of us are just guessing. We don't actually know how to help people find us, how to make them feel seen and heard and understood. And that's why I built the brand new Akimbo workshop, the Copy Workshop. We are running it one last time this year. Learn how to write effective copy in a way that respects your readers, that tells the truth and helps people find the things that they want, that you have, that you could give them if only you knew how to communicate effectively. Stop guessing and start knowing how to reach the people who want what you have. Come join us in the copy workshop. You can check us out over at akimbo.com backslash go. Click on the copy workshop. We'll see you there. If we wanted to, we could blame it on Jerry Thomas. In 1953, the Swanson Food Company made a mistake. They made too many turkeys. In fact, they had 260 tons of frozen turkey left over after Thanksgiving. I can do the math for you. That's 520,000 pounds of frozen turkey. The thing is, the turkey was in a refrigerated train car 10 to be exact, and the refrigeration didn't work unless the train car was moving. And so Swanson was busy sending these 10 train cars back and forth from the East Coast to the Midwest until they could figure out what to do with half a million pounds of frozen turkey. And what Jerry Thomas came up with, along with Betty Cronin, the brilliant food safety scientist who kept us all from dying, what they came up with was the TV dinner, perfectly named, perfectly packaged. You didn't have to think about what was for dinner. You didn't have to pay a lot for what was for dinner. You didn't even have to think about how it tasted. You could just go back to watching television. It was a triumph of convenience over taste. And the question is, is everyone entitled to their own taste? What do we say when we try to defend our taste? Let's consider the case of Giuliani Bugiali, the great Italian cookbook author. I took a cooking class with him many years ago, and he was teaching a very complicated dish that, if I recall, involved ground veal. It certainly wasn't particularly healthy, and it was loaded with calories. Well, here comes turkey again. During the Q&A part of the class, after we had all made pasta by hand, someone raised their hand and said, for the filling, I prefer not to eat veal can I substitute ground turkey? And Bugiali sneered, and with as much disdain as he could muster, he said, well, of course you can, if you want it to taste 
like dirt. And then he moved on. So what does it mean to be a defender of tradition? Is it elitist? Is it classist? Is it sexist? Is it racist? Is it about defending traditional white male European colonial values in the face of what people actually want? I'm not sure that's true. If we look at the temple of French cuisine, it is not in Paris. It is in Lyon, a working class town. The people in Paris were too busy making a living to worry quite so much about the quality of their sauce. If we think about how art on the wall evolved in a place like the United States, some of it had to do with Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell painting for the Saturday Evening Post, the most successful magazine in the history of the country, established what normal art looked like. And that is one reason why there's so much normal art. Or consider the people who will go to great lengths to defend the semicolon or the ellipsis or other elements of grammar. They're doing it trying to maintain some sort of standard in the face of a race for convenience, for cheap, for easy. When I was growing up, we used to go to Canada because ice time was a little cheaper on that side of the border away from Buffalo. And my dad would rent a rink at six o'clock in the morning. The hockey team would all go. We'd split the fee. And after a hockey practice, we were allowed to go across the street to the convenience store. And I would trade a shiny nickel for a Jersey milk candy bar because I was a candy snob and I knew that a Jersey milk candy bar tasted significantly better than a Hershey bar. Now, of course, a Jersey milk candy bar cannot be compared to a bean-to-bar bar made by the people at Fruition or by Gingy in Baltimore. And yet, some people prefer it. They say it's the regular kind. Or if we think about going to a real Ethiopian restaurant where someone has spent hours over the vegetable stew and we compare it to that place around the corner where they put something together from a couple containers in five minutes, it's not about class. It's about time. It's about choosing to spend time to maintain something that is difficult to maintain. There's a little restaurant outside of Salt Lake City, the Red Iguana, where the mole is made from scratch. It takes hours. Or if you pick up David Thompson's classic book on Thai cooking, you will find recipes that take two, three, four, five pages to explain how to make a dip that most people would just open out of a jar. In Julia Child's The Art of French Cooking, her recipe for a baguette, which only has three or four ingredients, takes more than eight pages. All of these are about commitments, commitments of time and energy and care. If you look on the recipes online at places like Serious Eats, what you'll see in the comments is, well, I substituted cottage cheese for the cream, and I didn't have any of the real cheese available, so I used the stuff from and on and on. They list the six substitutions they made because it was easier for them, and then they wonder why it doesn't taste the way they thought it was going to taste. Which leads us to the problem with typography. For years and years, typography was done by hand, 
by trained craftspeople who understood things like letter spacing and kerning and line spacing. And then we switched to digital. And at first, the professionals were aghast because it gave the typesetting tools, the typography tools to everyone. But then, then there was an explosion, an explosion in the development of different type styles. An extraordinary new work got made, but it was made with craft. But then TikTok and Instagram and memes show up. And all of a sudden, the fonts don't matter because the people who are exploring the frontier, the kids, they don't know any better. They're just eager to put up an idea. And suddenly the standard, the one that we grew up with, isn't the finely crafted typography that people of my generation are used to. It simply doesn't look right. It looks a little bit fussy. And then there's the chicken fingers problem, which is a variation of this. That as restaurants sought to grow, they established kids' menus. Kids' menus designed with things with fat and salt and crunch that are easy for a kid to decide they want to eat. Oh, you need protein? Well, let's turn french fries into something that's got some meat in it, hence chicken fingers. But now, now there's generations growing up who think that chicken fingers is the regular kind, the thing that they want to look forward to eating. I grew up eating macaroni with ketchup on it because my mom didn't want to trade the time it would take to build a six-hour Italian gravy every Sunday afternoon because she had something else to do with her time. My rant continues. Technology shows up and it brings us auto-tune. Auto-tune means that the musician can sound exactly right the first time. We can stand off the edges. And if that gets someone into the top 40, you can bet that the next artist wants to do it as well. So when Gil Scott Heron, the brilliant poet, the person who pioneered spoken word rap, when Gil Scott Heron shows up with his real work, Again, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, it's all wrong. Call in the cavalry to disrupt this perception of freedom gone wild. God damn it, first one wants freedom, then the whole damn world wants freedom. Nostalgia, that's what we want. The good old days, when we gave them hell. When the buck stopped somewhere and you could still buy something with it. To a time when movies was in black and white, and so was everything else. It's dramatically outsold by someone who is simply manipulating the market for a quick hit. Is one right or wrong? Is everyone entitled to their own taste? I recently had a back and forth with someone about white chocolate. The FDA, Bon Appetit, chocolate companies, many of them agree with me. White chocolate isn't actually chocolate because it doesn't have any cocoa solids in it. It doesn't taste different when the beans are different. Does that mean that you're not entitled to like white chocolate? Of course you are. But what does it mean to be a defender of taste, to lean into hyperbole to make a point, a point about sophistication? Because sophistication in our culture is a fascinating concept. Many of the people who make podcasts today grew up listening to NPR. NPR had the resources to make deeply researched, well-produced audio. And the reason that so many podcasts, the great ones, sound the way they do is that the people who are making them would like to be as sophisticated or even more sophisticated than NPR. Deeply musical act no matter what. It's pitches, contours of sounds, rhythm. A lot of it is 
trying to get the textures and the ingredients to behave the way you want them to. That's Jad Abumrad, founder of Radiolab, which established a whole new standard for what it meant to bring sophistication and care and commitment to doing something in audio. Or consider Starley Klein, who, working largely alone, created Mystery Show, just one season of it, establishing again what one person who is deeply committed to taste and sophistication is able to create. And yet, here's a podcast made by one person in a padded shower in his office, not sophisticated at all. It's the equivalent of the typography that you might see on Instagram or TikTok, and maybe proud of it. But we have to fight against suburban pizza. Suburban pizza, the same thing as TV dinners. The suburban pizza insight, which I've mentioned in previous episodes, is this. The pizza of our future is the pizza of our past. If you have been lucky enough to eat Sally's or Pepe's or even modern a pizza in New Haven, Connecticut, you know what the original pizza, the real pizza, the coal oven pizza is supposed to taste like. It is hard for me to imagine somebody who grew up with that not loving it forever because it's the right one. It's the sophisticated one. It's very difficult to make it that magical. But if you grew up in the suburbs of name your city, Des Moines, Topeka, even Chicago, maybe you grew up eating a frozen DiGiorno's. Maybe you grew up eating Pizza Hut. Maybe you grew up with the local independent guy. But they're all making mediocre pizza at scale. It's not mediocre to you, because like chicken fingers, like macaroni with ketchup on top, it's the one you grew up with. There is no accounting for taste. You're entitled to like it. But we also have to agree it's not as sophisticated. That real pizza, sophisticated pizza, difficult to make pizza, the platonic ideal of pizza, needs to be defended. And the reason it needs to be defended is because it is constantly being eroded, as is the vision of Gil Scott Heron, as is the perfect sourdough bread, as conceived by Lionel Poulain and his daughter Apollonia, as is the kind of jazz that Cannibal Adderley or Thelonious Monk made. It's not smooth jazz. It's the opposite of smooth jazz. It's rough on purpose, because making it that way requires a level of sophistication and care it's not about cottage cheese or auto-tune. It's about leaning directly into what happens when we decide to trade time for magic. Because our race for convenience and our Proustian quest for the things that remind us of what we were like when we were kids, those things are fine in their own way. But we have the chance to defend better. And better has a meaning. It doesn't necessarily mean the way Paul Bocuse would have made it. It doesn't necessarily mean the original way. I think what it means is what happens when we turn the dial up on care, on process, on sophistication, when we are measuring things with each other that are worth measuring toward a goal. So yes, everyone is entitled to their own taste. But no, I don't think it makes sense for convenience and price to rule the day. Sorry, Barbara, but... I haven't had a TV dinner since 1968, and I'm in no hurry to have another one. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 
We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know by now, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Hi, Seth. This is Liki from Paris. I work with purpose-driven fashion business founders. For example, some of them make dresses with repurposed fabric because they care about the environment. Some others make scarves using a traditional craft because they want to provide employment to jobless women. They are all small businesses, but they all have decided to use their businesses to create change. So I'm wondering, in this noisy world where many large companies spend lots and lots of money trying to convince people that what they sell would be good for the planet or for people, How can the small businesses I work with that have a strong desire to serve a cause, how can they get the message across effectively? How can they better stand out so people can understand that buying from them can make a small but real difference? It's a very important part of their work, and I'd like to understand how I can better serve them. Thanks a lot. Thank you for this, and thank you for the work you're doing. There are two challenges that occur when innovation is happening, when true believers are showing up to make things better, when people are leaning in to actual productive change in our culture. The first one, which you're not mentioning, is this perfection of perfect, that the other people, they don't get it. Whatever they do isn't good enough that we end up with these regimes, these hierarchies, where everybody is on this asymptotic race for who can do it the most perfectly, who can have zero impact on, never mind zero impact on the environment, who is making the environment better every day, what you're doing isn't good enough, I already tried that. But what you are talking about is the second problem. And the second problem is when it begins to work, the forces of industrial capitalism will follow you. And when they follow you, they will not do it as well as you were doing it, nor will they do it with as pure a heart. And we see this with the greenwashing that companies do. We see this when, for example, you can buy a $9 
pair of sneakers that are almost as good as the $105 or $205 or $400 sneakers, but the $9 knockoffs are made by people who don't care at all about running, and the original ones are made by a true believer. And when this occurs, when our core, beautiful, perfect idea gets corrupted, stolen by the forces of industrial capitalism, it's easy to look at this and be upset and be angry because they didn't pay their dues. They're not doing it for the same reasons that you're doing it. But it's a really big but. In our culture, that is the only way the culture actually changes. It changes when Patagonia, with its pure vision of less of an impact, gets ripped off by, quote, lesser brands of outdoor gear, but almost. And what that means is that Patagonia has to try even harder. What that means is that the people that you are working with cannot dismiss the folks who are taking some of what they're doing and maybe not doing it as well as they're doing it, but instead embrace that, but point out that for people who now get the joke, it can go even further. And that is how the culture ends up changing for the better. Because first, customers have to notice. They have to change their minds and believe that this is what they wanted all along. And only then, when the masses show up, having been taught something, do the true believers get a chance to say, you think that's something, we can go even further. And that is how ideas spread through our culture. I can rant about that more in the future. I'll think on it. Thank you for this question. Seth, this is Chris in Santa Cruz, California. I have a question about names. You, Seth Godin, have written many books, have been doing a blog for many years. People know your name, yet your podcast is called Akimbo. And I even find myself, when I'm recommending your podcast to other people, I rarely say, have you listened to Akimbo? I say, have you listened to Seth Godin's podcast? I have a small-ish, medium-sized company that I co-own, and we've been doing a podcast since before we opened. It started as a way to share ideas, kind of process what we were learning and share what we were learning with other people. And it's turned into something that's much, much bigger. The name of that podcast is the same as the name of the company. Now I'm looking at starting another podcast and I'm struggling with the name, which seems like the most ridiculous thing to struggle with. I have a small contingent of people who look at what we do. Yet for some reason, I don't want to name the podcast under my name. Why did you not call Akimbo simply Seth Godin? What's in a name? I remember the old Carol Shelby quote, if the car's good, the name doesn't matter. If the car's bad, the name doesn't matter. Would you talk about names? That would be incredibly helpful. Thanks for everything you do. Bye. This is a great point, Chris. Even if you didn't have a voice that was perfect for radio, I would take this question on because you are absolutely right. Based on most of the metrics that seem to matter, this podcast should be called Seth Godin's Podcast. Seth Godin's podcast is what it is. Seth Godin is a brand name that has value in the world in that it's a shortcut in just three syllables to explain what to expect. And yet, it's called Akimbo. 
And so the backstory is simple. When I set out to make a podcast, I wasn't exactly sure what it was going to be, but I made some rules for myself. And one of the rules was, probably being too clever, the name of the podcast had to start with an A because most podcast directories are in alphabetical order. So it was a simple discovery device. Secondly, I love the word akimbo. And I also love words that have deeper meanings, like the word akimbo, an obscure word, but the more you learn about it, the cooler it sounds. So in a moment with a complete lack of discipline, I gave this podcast the wrong name. Turns out, though, that once I was on that path, having the company, the one I no longer run, Akimbo, share that name turned out to be a great move. Because if I had called the place where the courses are, which is now an independent B Corp, Seth Godin's place with courses, it wouldn't have been possible for people like Alex and Marie and Sam and Graydon to be running it now because they're running it, I'm not. So there's my silver lining. But yes, you've made a great point. Getting clever with names is a mistake. I was really lucky. My mom was going to name me Scott, but my grandfather interceded and said, don't do that. That's the name of a kind of toilet paper. And so my name is Seth. And the beauty of the word Seth in the age of Google is that I'm usually on the first page. If my name was Scott, that would never have happened in my life. would be totally different today because of that simple choice that was made in 1960. So picking a name, there's lots of things to think about when you do it. It's a placeholder. It is a signal, a flag, a way for people to find you. It is a promise. It is something that we can talk to each other about in conversation. All of those things in one giant bundle. But fortunately for me, I don't take this podcast too seriously as a business. It's not a business. It's simply me being able to show up. And if you're already listening, it doesn't matter what the name is. And if you're not listening, I don't know what to do about that anyway. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.